During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about REN, W-R-E-N. It's a new way to fight climate change by funding climate solutions and the campaign for climate policy. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at how the war in Ukraine is exacerbating the food crisis that was already underway in a world of climate chaos and capitalism driving resources to the brink. Clips today are from The Takeaway, real-life lore, Democracy Now!, Prolicult on YouTube, and a TED Talk, with additional members-only clips from The David Pakman Show and real-life lore. It's not only gas prices that are up this year. According to the United Nations, global food prices remain close to record highs that they reached in March, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In the U.S., the Consumer Price Index for Food is up more than 14 percent since 2020, and that number is much worse in other places. In Lebanon, for example, which gets the majority of its wheat from Ukraine, the CPI is up over 3,000 percent. Yes, 1,000 since 2020. One significant factor in these high food prices, a Russian blockade of Ukrainian exports. It's having a cascading effect that's threatening the world's food security especially in the most food-vulnerable nations. Last month, during an event organized by the U.S. State Department, U.N. Secretary General issued a warning. Global hunger levels are at a new high. In just two years, the number of severely food-insecure people has doubled from 135 million pre-pandemic to 276 million today. More than half a million people are living in famine conditions an increase of more than 500% since 2016. These frightening figures are inextricably linked with conflict as was cause and effect. If we do not feed people, we feed conflict. With me now is Anna Nagurney, Chair in Integrative Studies at the Eisenberg School of Management, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and a board member at the Kiev School of Economics. Welcome to The Takeaway, Anna. Thank you so much for having me on your show. What's going on with the blockade of food exports in Ukraine right now? This is a very, very serious topic, and it's really, really important to be broadcasting to the world what is going on. Uh, Since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, uh, 2022, there have been major issues in terms of agricultural production and also in terms of agricultural supply chains. Uh, There are now silos that are heaving with grain, okay, that has been grown in Ukraine. And the demand is huge in many countries, which you had mentioned, for example, in the Middle East and also in Northern Africa. But typically, 90% of the grain that was harvested and grown in Ukraine would be shipped through the Black Sea. That is no longer possible because of the blockade and also the mining of the ports. Okay. At the same time, the new harvest is on the horizon. And typically in Ukraine, from July to December, that would be very busy time for the exports. There have been all sorts of other discussions going on in terms of different transportation routes, but that is really not the solution. 
So uh, this is a crisis that has to be, you know, paid attention to. The next couple of weeks are absolutely critical, I think, for the world. I keep trying to imagine what it means to be a farmer in the context of the kind of devastation and war that we are seeing um, in Ukraine. Is this about um, uh, the, the Ukrainian uh, government? Is this about um, the, the Ukrainian economy? Is are, are these outsiders trying to do the they or are these Russian occupiers trying to get the grain out? What What's happening here? Who's the they? Okay, well, obviously, the Ukrainian farmers and the government, uh, they want to get the grain out because that's a very important uh, component of their national economy. To get the grain out, you know, you have the United Nations now under discussions. Poland is helping. Uh, even uh, Romania is talking about using one of its cities, but, you know, that's really challenging. Obviously, you'd have to be talking to the Russians, and uh, there are all sor- sorts of sensitivities associated with that. What are you hearing from some of your colleagues at the Kiev School of Economics um, about um, this food crisis? Uh, they've actually just recently, a few days ago, released a major study on the damages in the war to agriculture in terms of the machinery that's been damaged, the silos that have been damaged, um, the, the thefts and so on, and also even the mining of agricultural fields. And it's in the billions of dollars already. Uh, so that is huge. And at the same time, the analyses are showing that, you know, the way to really, you know, uh, get the food out is via the Black Sea. Okay. That's the most efficient way. That's the most uh, cost effective way because uh, you have these big containers and so forth and these big ships. And using trucks and rail is just a stopgap measure. Uh, right now, uh, only about 1.5 million tons are being exported a month, and we really need at least uh, the level of 5 million uh, metric tons each month. So you see, uh, there are great, great challenges right now, logistically, you know, but, and we need uh, greater cooperation. There's a lot of tension being, attention being put on this uh, major uh, crisis. Uh, but we need also a resolution to it, and we need it soon. And this just shows another reason why this unprovoked war of Russia against Ukraine needs to be stopped. It's having global ramifications and will continue to have global ramifications. Now, is what's happening um, one of these unfortunate um, painful um, externalities of war, or is Russia weaponizing food? Uh, that's an excellent point. I'm actually grateful that you bring it up. It's been uh, about 90 years that we're marking now since uh, what is known as the Holodomor, okay, which occurred in 1932-1933, in Ukraine and also USSR. Okay. Holod in Ukrainian means hunger. So it was essentially death by hunger. And it arose because Stalin collectivized the farms and uh, also confiscated a lot of the food that was grown by the farmers in Ukraine. And it's been estimated that about uh, 4 million Ukrainians perished 
because they starved. There were even cases horrific uh, of cannibalization and about probably a million people, if not more, in other republics of the then uh, USSR. Okay, so this has essentially happened before. Okay, Ukraine has very rich soil, okay, fantastic agriculture. The farmers, they are my heroes. Uh, mm. They're still somehow managing to plant and harvest even in wartime as best as they possibly can. And it's it's historic, it, you know, uh, deja vu again, you know, 90 years after, you see what's happening. The West blames the Russians for engineering the crisis, while the Russians are blaming the West for imposing sanctions upon them. Moscow has offered to loosen up the blockade and allow the Ukrainian grain shipments to continue in exchange for the West relenting on their financial sanctions, which they've so far refused to do, accusing the Russians of holding the Ukrainian food as a hostage in the negotiations. Antonio Guterres, the current serving United Nations Secretary General, has stated his opinion that a compromise should be made wherein the Russians agree to lift the blockade in exchange for the West relenting on many of the sanctions that have been placed on Russian and Belarusian fertilizer products. But to be honest, that seems pretty unlikely because as the Russian army continues to struggle and fails to make any big gains on the Ukrainian battlefield, their shifting strategy towards economic warfare is only likely to continue. The blockade of Ukraine's ports, from the perspective of Moscow, is generally intended to strangle the Ukrainian economy into submission by simultaneously blocking their exports from leaving and blocking most imports of weapons, food, and cash from entering by sea. The side effect of this blockade preventing critical food shipments from reaching hungry countries across the Middle East, North Africa, and Eastern Africa is, if anything, a bonus to the Kremlin's greater geopolitical objectives. Because the massive levels of instability that it's going to cause in all of these places has the very high potential to trigger another round of revolutions and mass migration that is likely headed straight in the direction of the European Union, just like during 2015. Since Europe has already taken in nearly 8 million refugees now fleeing from the war in Ukraine since the war began, millions of additional refugees coming to the continent from the Middle East and North Africa will inevitably become politically turbulent. And this is almost certainly what Putin and the Kremlin are actually banking on. They have no geopolitical incentives to actually end this blockade. And as a result, it's going to cause one of the greatest humanitarian catastrophes of the 21st century. And then, to make this horrific situation even worse, further problems around the world since the invasion began have added even further fuel to the already raging fire. Fertilizer worldwide is currently in a short supply for a number of factors. Fertilizer production within the United States last year was hurt tremendously by the Great North American Winter Storm in February that became the costliest natural disaster in American history. 
as it devastated states from New York to Texas and caused nearly $200 billion in economic damages. Hurricane Ida that struck the coast of Louisiana later on in August caused even more devastation, adding a further $75 billion more in natural disaster-induced economic damages to America for the year and disrupting America's production of fertilizer even further. Then, China, the world's third largest exporter of urea, a critical raw material that's used to create nitrophosphate fertilizer, completely banned all of their urea exports back in December in the wake of their zero-COVID lockdown policies. And then, following the Western sanctions placed upon Russia after their invasion, Moscow decided to retaliate by suspending all of their own fertilizer exports, which is pretty bad for the global market, because of the three main types of industrial fertilizer, Russia ranks in the top three biggest global exporters in all of them. Back in 2021, a total of 25 countries worldwide imported more than 30% of their fertilizers from Russia alone, and they probably won't be getting any of that supply this year. All of this has contributed to a skyrocketing price for fertilizers worldwide, which has inevitably made the process of farming more expensive for farmers across the world and will decrease global crop yields this year. And then in India and Pakistan, the most severe spring heat wave seen in the subcontinent in more than 120 years struck in March, bringing drought and rainfall levels only a quarter to a third of normal. This historic heat wave struck during the final weeks of the wheat growing season in India, killing many of the plants before they could actually be harvested. And as a result, and in addition to the skyrocketing prices of wheat and fertilizer owing to the fallout from the war in Ukraine, on the 13th of May, the Indian government, which is ordinarily the world's 10th largest exporter of wheat, imposed an almost complete ban on the country's wheat exports, with minimal exceptions. There are currently 26 countries around the world that have now issued serious restrictions on food exports, including the Russians, who partially banned their own wheat and corn exports following the Western sanctions. In total, all of these export restrictions combined from these 26 countries are currently restricting roughly 15% of all the calories that are normally traded worldwide, which I cannot stress enough will become a absolute catastrophe if it isn't resolved very quickly. There are some creative methods that have been proposed that could help solve the problem, but they all have a number of associated cons. While increasing the supply of food this year is going to be very difficult, perhaps it would be easier to ease off of the demand. For example, roughly 10% of all the grains grown worldwide are currently being used to produce biofuel, and roughly 18% of all vegetable oils are used to produce biodiesel. Demand for biofuels have exploded recently as many countries around the world have tried to find alternatives to fossil fuels, but their production is having a huge impact on the availability of our finite and stretched food supply to feed the world right now. According to Grow Intelligence, a data firm specializing in agriculture, the calories that are currently being diverted to produce biofuels could soon be enough to feed the equivalent of the annual needs of 1.9 billion 
humans. Temporarily overturning and repealing biofuel mandates across the world could therefore greatly lessen the blow from this current food crisis. But even more consuming than biofuels are animals. Last year in 2021, the Chinese alone imported a record-breaking 28 million tons of corn, which is more than what Ukraine ordinarily exports in an entire year. And it was all simply to feed their pigs. Nearly one third of all the corn grown in America is simply used to feed cattle, along with roughly 40% of the European Union's entire crop of wheat. Simply cutting down a bit on the feed for the world's livestock herd for just a moment could do wonders to get us through this current food crisis. But since it would inevitably and conversely mean skyrocketing costs in meat and dairy products worldwide, it will almost certainly face enormous backlash and difficulties. Ultimately, there presently aren't really any easy solutions to this problem. One of the greatest faced by us so far in the 21st century. And the countries that will suffer the worst are the most vulnerable and the ones most heavily dependent upon foreign imports of food, especially the ones that are usually reliant on grain shipments coming in from around the Black Sea, like all of these ones across the Middle East, North Africa, and Eastern Africa, but most critically, Lebanon, Egypt, and Yemen who will each struggle to acquire alternative supplies of grain that they need to feed their populations this year. Expect that many of these countries are going to have a lot of problems and even worse instability than usual within the next nine months from when this video was posted. This is a global problem that is the culmination of both global climate change and global geopolitics. For obvious reasons, climate change has been top of mind for most of us this summer, and for many of us, much longer than that. I've worked in climate change activism, I have fundraised, I've tried bringing attention with this show, and what's clear more now than ever is that we need every solution in action, all working together. I'm all in on systemic solutions to systemic problems, but individual actions have their place as well. And that's where REN comes in. REN is a website where you calculate your carbon footprint by answering a few questions about your lifestyle. You can find out about your carbon footprint, how you can reduce it, and then help fund projects that plant trees, protect rainforest, and remove carbon dioxide from the sky. Once you sign up to make a monthly contribution to offset your carbon footprint, you receive monthly updates from the projects you support. You get to see the trees you planted and what your money is spent on. And to be clear, REN doesn't ignore the policy side of the issue either. REN members also support leading policy groups that push for climate changes to our economies, agriculture, infrastructure, power grid, every system that influences our planet's climate. It's going to take a lot to end the climate crisis, and you can start helping today by learning more at ren.co slash best. If you sign up using our link and tell Ren we sent you, Ren will plant 10 extra trees in your name. That's ren, W-R-E-N dot co slash best. Ren.co slash best. 
As experts warn of a pending global food shortage, not to mention the one that exists now, the United States and European Union have blamed Russia for preventing grain exports from Ukraine, which is one of the world's top wheat suppliers. On Wednesday, Russia pushed back and blamed the food crisis on sanctions imposed on Russia by the United States and European Union over its invasion of Ukraine. This comes as the U.K. is offering to help escort Ukraine's grain from its ports under a plan designed by the United Nations that's designed to prevent a mass famine across Africa, where the Ukraine war has led to sharp increases in food prices. African countries import nearly half their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Almost all the wheat in Somalia comes from Ukraine and Russia. And the United Nations says as many as 13 million people there are already facing severe hunger amidst an ongoing drought. On Monday, the U.N. humanitarian coordinator for Somalia made an urgent call to drastically increase humanitarian aid in the region. 1.5 million children below the age of five are already uh, malnourished, and we expect that 366,000 of them may not survive through the end of September of this year. There are eight districts that are already in what is known as IPC5, that is catastrophic, that is famine uh, um, situation. That number is bound to increase unless, unless we are able to scale up our response plan in a very, very major way. For more, we continue with Jan Egland in Mogadishu, Somalia. Uh, Jan Egland is secretary general of the Norwegian Refugee Council. Again, welcome back to Democracy Now! You arrived earlier this week. What have you seen? How devastating is the problem, and how much of it relates to the war in Ukraine? Well, I've been—I'm uh, now in Mogadishu, the capital, but I've been two days up in Baidoa, which is one of the hardest-hit areas in central uh, uh, Somalia. What I saw there was heart-wrenching, really. Uh, mothers and fathers having walked for 250 kilometers, many of them, to save one child from dying uh, from acute severe malnutrition, bringing them to the therapeutic feeding stations in Badoa town. Uh, they told that they had more children at home that had not been able to, to escape these drought-stricken areas. It, it's devastating, really. It is a creeping, uh, devastating drought, which is coming after four failed uh, rainy seasons. So it's climate change. It's the climate change that we in the industrialized world caused and who are dying from this. The children of Somalia from a people who did nothing to cause, uh, to, to cause climate change. And, and then again, we're, we are underfunded. We have hundreds of aid workers on the ground, but very little funding for the uh, life-saving efforts. And Jan, could you speak uh, specifically, first of all, uh, uh, obviously climate change is a massive factor, but do you think that the war in uh, uh, Ukraine has exacerbated the situation because so much of Somalia's wheat uh, came from uh, one of the two countries, both the countries together? 
It has. I mean, the food prices has has more than doubled in some areas. The 90% of the wheat, wheat came from Ukraine, number one, and Russia, number two. That's gone. So the Somali traders now need to compete for grain with, with Norwegians and Swiss and others who can afford high prices. Uh, so it's, it's, it's two things, two external factors, the climate change that leads to the drought and the war in Europe that leads to an exploding uh, price, exploding prices for food that is really causing this massive famine. Uh, and none of these factors were caused by the people. And that's why we're hoping that the G7 nations, including the U.S. now in Germany this weekend, will stand by their pledge to not allow biblical famines in, 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 in this century. At the moment, the famine is coming. And in addition to that, another contributor, perhaps, uh, is the fact that uh, farmers across Africa have been reporting, in addition to, of course, the uh, uh, increase in prices of wheat, uh, also uh, as high as a 300 percent increase in the price of imported fertilizer. Could you uh, talk about that? Yeah, and that is curbing food production on the in the continent of Africa that could increase its food pr- production and need to increase its food production. But but again, in Somalia, the, 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 these the, the people I met are, are are living from hand to mouth. They are living from goats and 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 sheep and camels that have died from thirst and and from from drought. Uh, the, 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 these are, are pastoralist farmers as, as well that did not use fertilizer. The, here it is the lack of aid and the drought and the food e- uh, price increase that is the, the enormous killer. earth is bled, and the crops will not grow, then all will fall to ash. The truth of this simple observation can be seen at every turn of human history, forgotten when the fruit of the land is in plenty, and then brutally remembered as hunger's painful barbs snare. Famine is an old evil, and it has raised many grand halls to ruin. With this in mind, it is clear that we do not speak lightly when we say that capitalism, today, is in the early hours of the most profound food crisis in human history. The pangs are already evident, as is always the case in this world of empire. They are felt most profoundly in oppressed nations. In Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya, One person dies of hunger a minute. With agricultural collapse in motion due to four years of drought and rampant fertiliser costs, this reality threatens to bloom into an all-consuming catastrophe. Over 20 million are threatened with starvation by September. In Sri Lanka, lower crop yields due to a ban on fertiliser put in place in response to rising prices 
in 2021 have brought the country to its knees, seeing a rise in food prices of 46.6% between April 2021 and 2022, and the nation default on its debt. Even within the centres of imperialist power, the reality of the food crisis is becoming known. Inflation at highs not seen in 40 years in the United States and Europe, driven by record-breaking food and energy price increases. Agriculture, in particularly Europe, faces total breakdown, with the majority of farmers already skirting bankruptcy, and the continent's largest producers of industrial fertilisers cutting production drastically. Globally, the UN predicts that the number of people facing food shortages could increase by around 47 million over the course of just this year, and that the crisis itself is expected to last years. In the first volume of Capital, Marx observed that all progress in capitalist agriculture is a progress in the art not only of robbing the worker, but of robbing the soil, and that every method by which capitalism has increased the short-term fertility of the soil is a progress toward ruining the more long-lasting sources of that fertility. This is particularly important in the case of nitrogen, vital for soil health and crop growth, but only gathered by legumes in nature. The guano fertiliser industry, established in 1824 and grown to a mass industry, fundamental for capitalist agriculture's nitrogen supply by the 1850s, elegantly illustrates Marx's observation. The first high-quality guano reserves subjected to capitalist exploitation were depleted by 1870, just three years after Capital's publication. After a century of warring and competition for island deposits of the material, which is composed of bird and bat excrement, the last guano reserves were exhausted in the 1970s. The short-term gains of increased fertility for the farming of cash crops had consumed its basis. Not only this, they saw agricultural practices shift away from the traditional methods which had previously sustained food production to nutrient application, requiring new forms of nitrogen fertiliser to sustain food production. Industrial ammonia fertilisers, produced from natural gas stock, first brought to the market in 1929 by Shell, provided the answer. This set the stage for the contradictions observed so far to play out at an increasingly elevated level, and for the broader contradictions of capitalist overaccumulation to assert themselves directly in the composition of agricultural capital. From the 1960s, industrial production of ammonia fertiliser ballooned, and global agriculture output grew enormously. However, to sustain this required an exponential increase in fertiliser. For example, across Asia, fertiliser use grew between 3 and 40 times faster than agricultural output through the 1980s. In both industrialised imperialist nations and oppressed nations, this process prevented a return to older forms of agriculture further eliminating traditional methods of soil maintenance, even simple crop rotations, 
increasingly concentrating land in large-scale farms or under monopolies, and draining the soil's long-term fertility. It also served to raise the ratio of capital invested in agricultural means of production relative to labour power, thus lowering profitability, and to tie agriculture directly to cheap gas production. 80% of the productive input for ammonia fertilisers today still derived from natural gas. With the energy crisis of 2021 sending gas prices skyrocketing, this situation was given an explosive catalyst. Fertiliser prices cascading far beyond the limits of profitability. With increasingly capital and resource-intensive extraction and refining techniques necessitated by greater reliance on non-conventional fossil fuels and new gas reserves, cheap gas prices are not going to return. Global capitalist agriculture has fallen into an epochal collapse. Capitalism is not only destroying its own capacity to create food, nor simply depleting soils for future generations. It is ending the environmental conditions which have allowed for agricultural production per se. The entire history of human agriculture, indeed of organised human labour in any sense, has taken place within around 11,500 years of climactic stability. This is the only period of such stability within the last 110,000 years. Today, this period is rapidly ending, driven by capital's need for insatiable consumption of natural resources and particularly fossil fuels, emissions still rising exponentially despite their clearly disastrous impact. This year, the consequences of this process for global food production have become apocalyptically evident. Drought stalks the globe. The worst water shortages in their history racking the Horn of Africa and the southwestern US, and severe drought cascading through Italy, France, Canada, India and more. Whole lakes evaporate in Chile, and drowned city ruins surface in Iraq. The implications for crops are staggering. A near total collapse of East African agriculture expected, and outputs in the US expected to plummet, up to three quarters of fields in the southwest expected to stay dry and grow nothing. It is estimated that 75% of the world will face conditions of drought by 2050. Something which has already prompted Wall Street to open a water futures market. Even if a solution to this water crisis wrought by extreme temperature is found, the heat shall still stifle the crops. A June 2022 study showing that heat can suffocate pollen and prevent fertilisation in many key crops, including canola, corn, peanuts and rice. Meat production will fare worse still, livestock already dying en masse from heat stroke and thirst, millions of cattle lost this summer. 
the accumulated weight of capitalism's entire history, its endless bleeding of our earth, its fires which thunder without pause. This is sweeping away the environmental basis of all human civilization. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look... If all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash best of the left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash best of the left. And I'd like to bring in uh, Rachel Besnaker. You were the lead author on uh, the climate aspects, the food aspects of the latest uh, IPCC report, the climate report. Could you speak about the impact of the climate crisis on food production and access? Certainly. And um, just to clarify, I was one of the uh, coordinating lead authors. It was a team of scientists that worked on that chapter and uh, that's important because there's many different dimensions to the climate crisis. What uh, our assessment showed and uh, emphasized is the way the um, uh, increasing uh, number of extreme events can uh, lead to uh, acute food insecurity uh, experiences, as we're seeing in places like Somalia and Ethiopia. And they often interact with non-climactic factors to really lead to these acute uh, food crisis situations. So conflict is, is a very common uh, non-climactic factor that's really leading to these acute uh, food crises. Um, but I, I also um, want to ag agree with Sophia in terms of the, the points she's raised. We highlighted in the report the vulnerability 
of smallholder producers to climactic events, in part because they uh, depend on uh, rain-fed agriculture for their livelihoods as well as for food production. Uh, and they also play a really important role in providing these diverse uh, food sources to uh, communities and to, to the globe. And they are often neglected uh, from a policy perspective. And so when you have these extreme events, you often get this lethal combination where you have uh, a drought, so you have reduced food production or you have flooding, and then you may have infrastructure disruptions. You get a loss of local uh, diverse food types and a spike in food prices, and then poorer households can't afford uh, to get access to that food anymore. And this lethal combination combined with something like conflict can really lead to acute food insecurity experiences. And what we documented in the report is increasing scientific evidence of the increased uh, uh, temperature rise from greenhouse gas emissions uh, being directly linked to uh, increased numbers of acute food insecurity events. Uh, but I would also agree with Sophia that it's not uh, a crisis that is uh, short-term. This is something that has very much been long-term in the making. And our food system really needs to transform fundamentally to serve the needs of all and to uh, uh, be recognizing the underlying ecosystem uh, that we depend on for our food. Uh, you've said, I, um, I, Rachel— I, I, well, I could talk about that some more. Go, go ahead. Well, Rachel Besner-Kerr, you've said that um, poorer nations in Africa and other regions of the world have become increasingly dependent on food imports. Why is that? And particularly looking at the Horn of Africa, at Ethiopia, at Kenya, at Somalia, Oxfam and Save the Children just did a report saying a child is dying every 48 seconds in just those three countries. Well, the reliance on food imports has been a long-term structural process that was really brought about uh, in the—starting in the 1980s under structural adjustment programs throughout Africa, where uh, countries that were indebted were obliged to um, uh, carry out programs that reduced their own uh, food production, and they became increasingly reliant on food imports. Uh, so that that it's a, been a long term process, and and much of what uh, Sophia raised in terms of some of the structural problems with our food system has what led to what uh, the current circumstance in the Horn of Africa. Of course, in the Horn of Africa, you also have this combination of of conflict that and, and drought in the current moment that has really led to this acute uh, food security crisis. Rachel, you've also pointed out that the current food production system is heavily reliant on fossil fuels. So could you talk about the impact of that on the climate crisis and how the climate crisis also impacts uh, food production that's reliant on fossil fuels? Yes. Yeah, so this is one of the, the um, bitter ironies of our current industrial uh, food production system. It's deeply reliant on fossil fuels. So it's a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, which also makes it vulnerable to um, the other to, to shocks and uh, uh, really uh, creating vulnerability through the way it produces food. 
Uh, fertilizer requires a lot of fossil fuel to produce. It also has, has to have fossil fuels to distribute and to apply. And there are many other components of the way we produce food uh, using this industrial model that leads to uh, considerable greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so uh, in order to have a long-term uh, reduction in the number of crises, we really need to transform our system to not be reliant on fossil fuels. And uh, in our report, we highlight ecosystem-based approaches such as agroecology that rely on ecological processes and reduce this reliance on uh, fossil fuel-based inputs as really the way forward if we're going to uh, have a food system that is stable, resilient, and that is uh, supporting our ecosystem that we depend on. Um, so things like pollinators and water quality, all of uh, those uh, ecosystem services that we depend on are also undermined with the industrial model. And so the, the a key solution for getting out of the crisis that we will be continually experiencing unless we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions is transforming the food system to be much more ecological in the way that we grow uh, and distribute food. And Sophia Monsalves-Suarez, as we begin to wrap up, if you can comment on what you think are the most critical ways to deal with the hunger crisis in the world today, and who should be making these decisions? Yes, I think we have to move away, finally, from this uh, world food security strategy based on global trade, is an, and based on an industrial food system. It's just simply not working, and it's putting us at an enormous peril of all these famines that we are uh, facing. So therefore, uh, we need to transform the food systems, industrial food systems, as Rachel is saying, to transition out of fossil fuel-based uh, food systems towards agroecology and food sovereignty. So food sovereignty is about strengthening democracy, strengthening the groups and actors suffering most from hunger and malnutrition. But, but who is asking them what they need? Who is asking Somalia what they want to have? Nobody. The G7 is making uh, the decisions. G7 want to continue with a global trade as it is. No changes at all in the architecture of trade, investment, and finances. And this is the problem. So we really urgently need uh, uh, to tackle this and uh, to speak and listen uh, to the populations and the countries which are suffering most now. There's a need for urgent action from at least three lenses. A health lens, an equity lens, and a climate lens. Starting with the climate lens, we must modify how we grow food and reduce food waste. Our food ecosystem is one of the largest contributors to climate change. We keep cutting down trees to grow more food, and we keep wasting food, which ends up in landfills and rots generates methane. The good news is that we have the technology and the science today to grow enough food to feed the world and to address our food waste problems. We have the knowledge, but we're not using it. There are exciting examples from my ecosystem where we're seeing 
dramatic impacts. The Songhai Center in Benin Republic educates young Africans on regenerative agriculture and zero-waste total production. And one of these young people is doing just that. Through his company, BioLoop, he's feeding waste, cassava peels, yam peels, to black soldier fly lava. They're growing really quickly and becoming wonderful fish feed. The byproducts and the residue from this process is wonderful soil supplements. And the entire production process is run on renewable energy. Through my work with Sahel Consulting, we're demonstrating that farmers can double and triple yields without hurting the environment. We're using technology and science from our local research institutions, and we're proving that in Africa, there are great examples for the rest of the world to emulate. Now we need to scale these interventions, and we need to ensure that our governments, our private sector, our farmers are incentivized to change behavior and to improve lives. If you're as impatient as I am, you also have a role to play by reducing the food waste in your home. Every single person here can take up a policy to ensure that their schools, their companies, their civil society groups have a sustainability policy and a food waste policy. And please, don't tell your children to finish their dinner because they're hungry children anywhere. Tell them to finish their dinner because it's good for the environment and healthy food is good for them. Second, we must ensure that healthy food is affordable and accessible for the most vulnerable. This is a huge challenge. Unhealthy food kills, and we know this. One out of every five deaths is linked to unhealthy food, and yet one-third of our world's population cannot afford a healthy diet. This is a big challenge. Now, food is medicine. Healthy food gives us long and productive lives. And during COVID, we've seen the impact of closures, shipping challenges that have affected food prices. And the most vulnerable have had to shift from healthy diets to unhealthy diets because they're cheaper. This has caused more damage to lives all over the world. We must take a stand on this. And we can learn a lot from Africa. The Hatsibe people, in Tanzania, live in harmony with the land. And through their lives, we've seen the ability to have a healthy diet. They eat 10 times more fiber than the average American. Oftentimes, we don't realize that even in our own traditional communities, we have so much to learn. In urban communities, we also have exciting social enterprises like MDOC that's using digital technology, cell phones, and training to get urban populations that are struggling with diabetes, high blood pressure, and so many other health challenges linked to eating ultra-processed food to shift to more traditional diets, and they're seeing measurable outcomes. We must scale these type of interventions, but we must also hold our private sector companies responsible for the amount of sugar and salt contained in food. We must set standards for what healthy food is and define healthy food according to plant-based diets, low salt, low sugar, and keep all of us accountable. We must also encourage our governments and ensure that at the local, state, and federal level, 
Our school feeding programs prioritize healthy food. Our public procurement programs prioritize healthy food. And collectively, we ensure that we keep the standards high for everybody, every child. If you're as impatient as me, you must also set standards and hold those in your spheres of influence accountable for delivering on healthy food for the most vulnerable. Third, we must support small and medium-sized enterprises. In the food ecosystem, small and medium-sized enterprises are the bedrock of our economy. They create jobs, they're innovative, and they can pivot very quickly. But during the pandemic, we've seen something. They're most affected by shocks. The mortality rates of small and medium-sized enterprises in the food ecosystem has been quite high. Now, through my work, I've seen the value and the power of small and medium-sized enterprises. I'm the co-founder of a food company called Ace Foods. We have over 50% of our staff are women, 50% of our board are women, and we produce healthy foods sourced from over 10,000 farmers. Through this company, we're demonstrating that when you empower women, you empower communities. One product that we sell has a ripple effect through the entire ecosystem. Another company that's worthy of emulation is Twiga, using mobile money and cell phones to connect farmers to urban retailers. Now, their efficiency and removing the middlemen, creating shorter value chains, ensures that not only the farmer benefits, the retailer benefits, but the consumer has access to healthier food. Through Nourishing Africa, I work with entrepreneurs in 37 African countries who are scaling sustainable businesses, building healthy food companies, and demonstrating that strong, small, and medium-sized enterprises committed to sustainable agriculture and healthy food can become change agents. We need to support our small and medium-sized enterprises, creating an enabling environment for them, providing catalytic financing, enabling them to scale, and supporting women-owned businesses, especially businesses run by young women. In the food ecosystem, we're often told to be patient when we plant the seed to let it grow. We're often told to let the vegetables simmer so that the juices will flow. We're told that ndidiamaka, patience is a virtue. But a wise woman was said for the dreamer, impatience is a virtue. I am impatient about the current pace of change in the food ecosystem. And I think we all must be courageous and bold to transform this landscape. The next time you eat a meal, ask yourself a few questions. Who grew this food? Where was it grown? When was it grown? How many steps and stops did it make before it got to your table? How much food waste was generated because of this meal? Let your answers influence your next meal. The fact that you have a choice gives you privilege and also gives you a voice to demand that the solutions to the food ecosystem align with what works for people and planet. We must collectively create a food ecosystem that works not just for us, but for future generations. Our children and grandchildren will hold us accountable for what we chose to do today to transform the food ecosystem.
We've just heard clips today, starting with The Takeaway, discussing globally rising food prices and the weaponization of food. Real Life Lore looked at geopolitical destabilization, the fertilizer shortage, and impact of grain used for animal production. Democracy Now! looked at the impact of climate and conflict already causing starvation. Prolicult discussed the role of capitalism in consistently depleting resources. Democracy Now! looked to the UN Climate Report section on food production and the need for food sovereignty. And finally, we heard a TED Talk on improving food production and reducing waste. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The David Pakman Show clarifying the difference between a shortage of specific products and a true shortage of food. The first step in really thinking critically about this is what do we mean by a food shortage? Because there are some people who seem to think that a food shortage is my favorite orange juice wasn't available. I had to get pulp instead of no pulp. And real life lore looked at the warnings of famine just before the war in Ukraine began. The global supply chain of food was already under a lot of stress when Mr. Beasley publicly announced his warnings of famine, instability, and mass migrations around the world over the next nine months at the Munich Security Conference on the 18th of February, 2022. And then, just six days after those warnings were made, Vladimir Putin ordered nearly 200,000 Russian soldiers to invade Ukraine. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, my name is Phil. I'm here in California, and um, I just discovered your podcast. I absolutely love it because I feel like I am listening to a lot of commentary politics podcasts, which is, I think, good if you're progressive and you can find the right progressive politics podcast to listen to, but also balancing it out with just the knowledge-based podcasts that I get from you and Unfuck Their Public. And I really enjoy listening to you both. My big request, if it's possible, I just got done listening to your podcast that was about Fox News. And I think it'd be amazing if you can come out with something that really centers around the culture wars. Because I feel like that's kind of the big push for Fox News is trying to fight culture war as well as a push for, you know, vast majority of conservative senators and congressmen. And I just feel like if we could break down culture wars and what they talk about, I'd love to hear what y'all's perspective is on that and um, clips you might play off of that. So thanks again. Keep doing what you're doing. I think it's incredibly impactful. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks to all those who called in to the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. And thanks today to Phil for his call. In response to his question about, uh, you know, an episode about culture wars, I would argue that essentially Every issue Republicans address these days are part of the culture wars because they don't have any other ideas for society or policies that they advocate. It's just about controlling people they generally don't like and telling people how to think, particularly about our own history. So if, if you want my take on the culture wars, 
I would just go through them issue by issue. I'd start with the war on the LGBTQ community. You could start with uh, episode 1479, Torturing Children and Families in the Name of Protecting Them, about trans rights. Then uh, 1498, much more recently, Pride and Prejudice. Then there's the culture war against facing a history of systemic racism in America. You could start with number 1470, Distorting History and Banning Books is a Power Play of Exclusion. And a little bit further back, number 1453, The Tea Party 2, which is from last year's school board nearly riots that uh, were breaking out over critical race theory. I would also say that the dismantling of bodily autonomy also qualifies as a culture war, as there's no sound, reasonable basis for the government to step in between doctors and patients other than the religious beliefs of a minority of Americans who want to impose those beliefs on the rest of society. So for more on that, there's our very previous episode, number 1501, about post-rural America. And then getting back to history, you can go all the way back to the beginning of the New World from the European perspective. And there's the culture war over Columbus Day and the effort to continue to ignore the genocide of Native peoples. And for that, there's episode number 1374, Tell Stories, Not Myths, Columbus and the Centrality of Colonialism. And then speaking of genocide, let's not forget about the much more recent colonial atrocity that many are equally invested in continuing to cover up, the attempt to exterminate Native cultures through the kidnapping and raising of Native children in abusive residential schools. I mean, if that's not a culture war, I don't know what is. For more on that, check out episode 1431, Stealing Native Children and Their Future, as well as number 1492, The Great Replacements which compares the conspiracy theory, Great Replacement Theory, with the actual, literal Great Replacement that happened in the genocidal effort to exterminate Native peoples. I don't know, there, there's something about American culture that, you know, no, no one loves to look back on dark things in their past. But what's interesting about American culture, I think in particular, is that we love a redemption story. We almost like a person more if they've done something bad and recovered from it. We love the redemption story, but for whatever reason, we have not gotten that to translate into a nationwide culture of redeeming ourselves for our past history. People are so dead set on covering up, washing away, ignoring the dark parts of our history. They, they accuse people like me of just wanting us to feel terrible about the past for some unknown reason, which they then, you know, take a stab at guessing that I guess we just hate America or whatever. But no, I, what I would love to see is a redemption story. I would love to love this country even more because we overcame our dark past. Unfortunately for now, it looks like we're nowhere near doing that, but... Lots of people are trying, shipping away, making progress. Other than that, I just want to say it's good to be back after COVID. Uh, thanks for all the well wishes. We were particularly happy to have been triple vaccinated when we were infected, as that almost certainly was the reason that our symptoms were kept relatively moderate. You know, I couldn't help but th think back as as the symptoms were 
on the increase, thinking back to those early days of COVID and 2020, and we began to hear all those stories of people feeling like they could hardly breathe, is like there was a weight pressing down on their chest, and I thought, oh no, how bad is this going to get? But no, we got away with sore throats, congestion, fatigue, that sort of thing. We sat around for a week and just let our bodies do their thing and fight the infection. And, and now we're like pretty, very nearly back up to normal. Just some lingering, lingering weirdness that uh, we're, we're working through just fine. So we were glad that it was moderate, but obviously it wasn't particularly enjoyable by any stretch. So keep up on your vaccinations and keep wearing high quality masks when indoors and sharing the air with others. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.